Hi, everyone, and welcome to Pursuit of Wellness podcast. And my, your host is Daria Tiesler. I have today someone um, so important to me for many reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is, um, and I'm sure you as well have found not only one person around you that suffer from diabetes. I had my grandma, my brothers of my, someone from my husband in family, uh, then neighbor. There, are all, there is always someone that is going to suffer from diabetes. Another reason, uh, from my clinical practice, there is so much, so much misconception about how to actually work with uh, this type of conditions. Some people saying go low carb, some they saying go high carb, so saying go keto, right? So I want to bring this guest because I wanted to bring this guest because he is a scientist. Yes, we want scientists, right? He is a professor as well. And uh, that is for me very important. But um, what brought me farther uh, to actually invite Ben to this conversation is how he does appear on social media. He is a person who you, you know, you go in there, he, you want, you just love him. He shared the message. Mm -hmm. He has smile. He is just normal. And, um, you know, there is nothing else I can say. So, uh, welcome once again to Ben, professor, scientist, uh, writer, uh, educator, and, um, you know, what can I say? Hi, Ben, and thank you once again for sharing a message and coming and joining my podcast. Oh, Daria, thank you. My pleasure. I'm happy to be able to chat with you about all things metabolism. Yes, we love metabolism, right? Especially for January month, I think is a great mm -hmm. uh, topic. Everyone is on this journey of uh, weight loss. And I think with uh, COVID and with everything else that is happen happening around immunity, it's so important to begin to discover what is really a root cause of what's happening with, with health of society. Because I think um, it's not showing... Um, what is showing COVID is how we are sick. It's showing yes. how we took health for granted. And I've been uh, in this industry for so many years um, and I had always that mission of prevention. But you know, I've been having fears because no one wanted to talk about prevention. But now more than ever, we have to talk about prevention. Ben, please let us know and to all our audience, what is your journey as a professor, scientist, and what brought you uh, into that passion to insulin? Yes, it has been an interesting journey. My graduate career, my first graduate degree was in exercise physiology. I was more interested in the muscle but towards the end of my master's degree, I saw a paper that had been published a few years prior to that, where they uh, found that fat cells were releasing pro-inflammatory proteins. And so the fat cell was making the body more inflamed. And that was thought to be the main connection between fat tissue or overweight, obesity, and diabetes. And that one study that I found uh, totally shifted my interests. And I was much, much less interested in muscle and then became much more interested in fat. And, and that is the, the journey that I'm still on to this day. Uh, uh, more and more, we are uh, in my lab are interested in understanding what is making fat cells grow and shrink, and how does that fat cell growth 
influence the rest of the body? What does it do to when the fat cells are getting too big? How does that affect the body? And much of that is through insulin resistance. Right. It's a big word. And as I said, I don't think um, many people, even I think medics understand <laughs> what does it mean, insulin resistance. That's why the questions we are going to form uh, in this podcast are very basic. So every single person on act can actually understand and potentially identify symptoms of uh, insulin, insulin resistance because obesity, weight gain is just on the rise every single uh, year. As I said, for the last 15 years uh, in my clinical practice, uh, more and more uh, people suffer from obesity, but a weight gain. However, the symptoms are not always directly linked to mm -hmm. how much do they exercise and how much do they eat. That is a very important factor and we're going to uh, discuss this, but it's not the only, uh, only one. Fantastic. Uh, ben, my question is, and this is how I further uh, explore this, what are the common lifestyle triggers to uh, insulin resistance or to chronic health conditions? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I believe there are three key primary causes of insulin resistance. And by primary, there, there are others than just the three that I will mention, but these are the three that have been shown to cause insulin resistance in all of the, the three important research models that scientists will use, namely in cell cultures, like growing cells in a little dish in a laboratory. And this, these are causes that have been shown in animals like mice and rat and in humans. So all three of these biomedical experimental models um, have support or have been used to show support for these three causes. Now, the three causes, which is what you ask. One of them is stress. Hmm. So when we think about stress, uh, that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but I define stress as a, a state where in the body, the two main stress hormones are elevated and that is cortisol and epinephrine or also called adrenaline. Those two hormones at any moment are trying to push blood glucose levels higher. That's one of the main things they're trying to do. And of course, insulin, one of insulin's jobs is to push glucose down. And so now you have these two hormones trying to push up. You have insulin trying to push down and insulin has to work harder <clears throat> and the body is in more insulin resistant in that state. And someone, uh, if they're wondering about what is causing the cortisol and epinephrine levels to come up, it really is any stressful situation, including poor sleep, a night of bad sleep can bump those hormones up for a time, and even emotional stress um, because of work or relationships or COVID or anything similar. So stress is one of the primary causes. A second is inflammation. And this is inflammation um, from any source, uh, including our own immune systems. Like the most obvious example of this is when someone has um, an autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis, we have evidence in humans to show that as the arthritis comes and goes, it's very bad or it gets a little better. So too does insulin resistance. The, the, the insulin resistance will follow with the activity of the autoimmune disease. And so inflammation is a secondary cause. And then the last one is the one that I think is most important because 
not only does it have evidence in all three experimental models that I mentioned, but it's also one that someone can start changing very, very quickly. And that is insulin itself. And that may be a little surprising or even a little difficult uh, to, to imagine, but a chronically elevated insulin is a cause of insulin resistance. And this is um, uh, really representative uh, in, in many uh, biological um, instances where too much of something at a cell will result in the cell becoming resistant to that something. Whether it is a hormone like insulin, if a cell is constantly being inundated or covered with insulin, the cell will stop responding to it. We see that, of course, with drugs and alcohol. Uh, the person needs more and more of it or, or antibiotics on cells like bacteria. So too much of something will cause a resistance to that something. And so uh, hyperinsulinemia or chronically elevated insulin in the blood is also a cause of insulin resistance. So those are the three primary causes. And there are others that I mentioned, but I think it's, it's just more valuable to focus on those three uh, as really as the, the origin. I, I do agree with you. Uh, just based on my uh, clinical practice, I don't have that uh, big data of research. That's why I've got your book, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's why I've been uh, studying um, from people who actually research. And yeah, I'm clinician, right? I'm not a researcher. Uh, but it's mm -hmm. very interesting uh, all what you say, because in my clinical practice, when I see people uh, who cannot lose weight despite of going calorie down and over-exercising, I always, they ask me what's going on. And I say, listen, you are under constant stress. You cannot forget then that uh, fat is also inflammatory tissue and mm -hmm. autoimmune, as you're saying, is a, will be kind of on the way. The trigger is going to be insulin resistance. And it's another interesting thing because uh, my mom has rheumatoid arthritis and um, I've done a lot of work with her, but you know, I don't think working with family is the same as working uh, with a client, right? Yes. And, um, and she texted me, she said, listen, my fingers going not the way they should go. They're getting worse, more swollen. I said, mom, uh, check, um, check certain things. And one of those things, she said, I have a little bit um, like acid reflux when I drink, drink coffee and when I eat sweet, I said, listen, what about H. pylori, right? It just came to me. But then I said, but you know what? Do not forget to test yourself for insulin. And you know what she said? But I am not diabetic. And I'm like, mm -hmm. listen, you don't need to be right this is like and you just yes. telling me this and i'm like okay intuitively i did know you have to check this um up and i think i will jump here ben with a question because i think that is the place for it why then and i'm sure you know this so many um hospitals and doctors right uh they are only testing for glucose fasting glucose before or um, uh, without testing all this extra, I believe more important markers for insulin resistance if they are checking, uh, let's say if you have diabetes, right? And glucose always is right. I actually hardly seen high glucose level, but when I test, uh, for example, fasting insulin, very often is elevated. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, I'm so glad you are bringing attention to this. We look at diabetes and the progression towards diabetes almost totally through the lens of glucose. Everything is glucose-centric. 
um, diabetes and any of the related metabolic or cardiometabolic problems. That's probably because two reasons. One, it is so easy to measure glucose. It is something that we can just prick a finger and, and measure with the glucose meter, and now we know the person's glucose. So it's so easy to measure. And two, the main, classically, historically, the main symptom of diabetes was urine. The person was producing a very high amount of urine. Indeed, that's what the word diabetes means. It means the production of a lot of urine. And that is directly a result of the very high levels of blood glucose, where that very high level of glucose is getting filtered into the kidneys and the kidneys can't move it all back into the blood. And so the glucose stays in the urine and that pulls more water, which just produces more and more urine. So that is why I think historically the view has been so heavily on glucose. It was so easy to measure and the main symptom historically was, was a function of the high glucose levels. However, with time, and with, with more knowledge and greater technology, I think that that view is becoming less acceptable. And we need to acknowledge that from a simple blood test, we can now measure insulin, although not at home, unfortunately. It still, has to, it still is going to be in a clinic for, for the time being. Um, but it, is, it can be done. And we know now so much more that uh, uh, of the history of diabetes, which is going to be something like this, where the, the, we have the, the, the patient's insulin and we have their glucose levels. And the, as the body is becoming ever more insulin resistant, the insulin levels are getting higher and higher and higher, but it's enough, it's working well enough to keep the glucose levels normal. And so because we're only looking at the glucose, we think everything's fine. But if we were to shift the focus to the insulin, we would see, as you noted, wow, insulin is five times higher than it should be. Uh, so it allows us, if we look, if we shift the focus to insulin, we can detect the problem much, much sooner. And in almost every instance, we can treat the problem better because if, if we are... You know, on one hand, we're waiting for the glucose to climb. Well, that, that happened 10 or 20 years after the insulin was elevated. And so we detected it too late. But we also, especially in the case of type 2 diabetes, because we only look at the glucose, the physician, the clinician will say, well, let's just give you more insulin, even though your insulin is elevated already, which it almost always is in a type 2 diabetic, almost always, very, very, very few instances are exceptions to that. But they will say, let's just push your insulin higher and that will lower your glucose. And it does lower the glucose, but by pushing the insulin higher, we make them fatter and sicker and they die more because of it. It's because this is not a glucose problem, it's an insulin problem. And when we put the insulin higher, we make them sicker. Right, it's like we, uh, it's as I'm listening and I'm just jumping with another question, which I meant to ask before, just to join. Um, uh, smoothly what you said, it would mean that uh, this was the question and around um, if it's possible that person with diabetes type 1 can develop uh, insulin resistance because I actually work with a person who is uh, diabetic type 1 and it's happening what you say that anytime insulin goes up, glucose goes up, they're going to push the uh, insulin up yep. and then she said yes, I'm getting fatter. I said yes because it is actually more insulin create more inflammation 
and you you already have difficulty with metabolic issues so it's not no surprise that you're going to get uh, fatter so is that scenario possible and it's very common mm -hmm. oh yes it's uh, i don't know how common but it's certainly possible um, where a person with type 1 diabetes starts to become insulin resistant which is the basis of type 2 diabetes so they start yes. to kind of have both but that is so reflective of the problem of too much insulin itself because one of the one of the myths one of the great unfortunate uh, things we say to a person with type 1 diabetes we say eat whatever you want and just yes. cover it with insulin just make sure and so the type 1 diabetic will be eating cake and 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 bread and cereal and all these starchy sugary and fatty foods and because their glucose goes really high they need to give themselves a lot of insulin and they're always giving themselves a lot of insulin and as i noted too much insulin causes insulin resistance insulin and now they have now they have moved into this hybrid mix of diabetes but it all started because they were eating too, so much refined starches and sugars they needed to give themselves so much insulin and then they caused insulin resistance Yes, I'm, I'm so glad we're bringing this up because I remember my, uh, my grandpa in the past, every time he gave himself, he became fine uh, um, at the end, uh, diabetic type 1, right, dependent of the insulin. Uh, he always after each shot, he would have wide, big piece of bagel. And I'm like, why do you have this? You just gave yourself a shot of yep. insulin. Yes. And then you have it that, and he always would say, this is what doctor told me to do. So I can yeah. eat white bread, right? And I'm like, uh, you know, he was an amazing person. But I think, uh, unfortunately, 20, 40, 50 years ago, we didn't have the knowledge uh, that we've got now. And we have to push to, uh, to educate. And that's what we're doing here. So everyone start to think about root causes of what is happening. Fantastic. Yes. My next question Let's we're talking insulin resistance, insulin resistance. What it is insulin resistance that our audience can understand and pronounce that mm -hmm. up? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so insulin resistance is actually two things together. And so we could say that we have a, a coin and this coin is insulin resistance. And one side of the coin is the, uh, the, where some cells of the body are not responding as well to insulin as they used to. That's very important. So every cell in the body, every cell from, from bone cells to brain cells, liver cells to lung cells, every cell has insulin receptors. Or in other words, every cell will respond to insulin. Insulin will tell the cell what to do. Uh, to, 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 it will tell the cell to do something. And some cells don't listen to insulin as well as they did before. They become like a disobedient child. They don't listen anymore. But some cells still listen. They still respond to insulin. That is one aspect of, of that's one side of the coin that we call insulin resistance. And again, that is some cells aren't responding as well to insulin as they used to. The other side of the coin is that insulin levels are elevated. They are higher than they were before. So those are the two sides of the coin. One, insulin isn't working as well at some cells. And two, uh, insulin levels in the body are higher than they were before. And that matters. That second aspect is very important 
because now you have some cells that are still responsive to insulin. They listen, and now they have too much insulin. They are, insulin is telling the cell to do too much. And, and the two aspects of this problem of insulin resistance are very obvious when we talk about infertility, for example, where in men, the most common form of infertility is erectile dysfunction. And that is largely because the blood vessels become insulin resistant. And now the blood vessels don't listen to insulin and now the blood vessels cannot dilate or increase blood flow. So erectile dysfunction is a problem of insulin not working very well. But in women, the most common form of infertility is polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS. And uh, in, in that situation, it's a disease of too much insulin. And the, the elevated insulin is inhibiting the ovaries' ability to make estrogens. And now she cannot get a big estrogen peak, and so she does not ovulate, and so her fertility is, is compromised. So in both instances, we have infertility in men and women reflecting the two sides of the coin that we call insulin resistance. Right. And uh, it's not that PCOS, I'm talking as a woman, probably I picked the PCOS, right? Um, however, erectile dysfunction is also very common, uh, I guess, in, uh, in male population. But this is not why PCOS is so, so common, right? Oh, yes. Like every third, fourth, fifth woman has PCOS, right? And they are, again, struggling with diet, they over-exercising, right? And then the triggers to, uh, to PCOS are triggers to insulin resistance, right? Stress, inflammation, and increased uh, level of yes. uh, uh, insulin in the body, right? So, um, yes, I think this was very right uh, title to your book, Why Do We Get yeah. Sick, Ben? Right. Fantastic. Uh, ben, I probably should ask this question for anyone who does not know, what is insulin? What mm -hmm. is function of yeah. insulin? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the most basic question. Yes. Yeah. Insulin, insulin is a hormone and it's most, and it has, as I mentioned a moment ago, it can have an effect at every single cell in the body. And in some cells of the body, like muscle cells or fat cells, it will tell the cell to take in glucose from the blood. And so that is, indeed, that is what insulin is most famous for its ability to lower blood glucose by pushing the glucose into a cell from the blood. However, most of the cells of the body don't need insulin to take in glucose. They can just pull in glucose on their own. But even still at those cells, insulin is having an effect. It's telling the cell to do something. So I think the best um, definition of what insulin does is that it tells every cell in the body what to do with energy. Whatever the energy is, whatever the nutrient is, it tells a cell to make new proteins or to make new fats. It tells the cell to lower metabolic rate or it tells the cell not to die, not to go uh, to activate apoptosis, but to continue to live and to grow. All of this is, I think, reflective of what insulin does. And again, it insulin tells the cell and the body by extension what to do with energy. It is as I, I would think and say that insulin as stress can be a friend of human. Mm -hmm. It's there for a reason, right? But we kind of often pushing 
our homeostasis out of balance, right? And then what's happening, it's happening, right? We get in all this uh, chronic health conditions, right? Or maybe even actually yes. homeostasis is doing us too much favor. Maybe if we if was pushed a bit faster, we would react faster. Otherwise, we're just waiting until we get very, very ill to then mm -hmm. be began ask question what is uh, happening. Fantastic, thank you so much, Ben, for uh, clarifying what is actually insulin. So as we are following, we discussed the triggers to the insulin uh, resistance and uh, what is insulin, what is insulin resistance. And now let's talk about lifestyle, right? This is like what lifestyle and how lifestyle can trigger insulin resistance. We talk a little bit about stress, but there are any other factors from lifestyle that actually trigger insulin resistance? Oh yeah, yeah, yes. So I, I highlighted the, the main three pillars, inflammation, stress, and chronically elevated insulin. I, I, I won't add to that. I will simply say all of those can be altered based on lifestyle, especially, well, all of them. Um, inflammation is one that may be hard to control um, if it is relevant in a person because it would be difficult to know what is triggering autoimmunity. Uh, but, but usually, and even including autoimmunity, there is an environmental trigger. Someone is doing something, they're exposing themselves to something that they might not even know of that is activating their immune system. And this doesn't have to be the case just with an autoimmune disease. You could just have a sensitivity to some food or to some chemical where it's not causing an autoimmune reaction, but it is still increasing inflammation in the body. And then with stress, I, I very much think we need to have better sleep habits, which includes turning off screens, not eating too late into the night, and, and taking time to, to be quiet and to be thoughtful and meditative. But then the one that I think, as I mentioned earlier, that is most important is not spiking our insulin levels all the time. And that is so important because so many people do it wrong because we've been told to do it wrong. We have been told we must eat most of our calories from carbohydrates and we need to eat every two hours. We need six little meals per day. And that I think is the worst advice because we have someone who wakes up in the morning and their insulin has now come down overnight while they've been sleeping. They wake up and they eat a starchy breakfast of cereal or, or bagels or toast and they spike their insulin up and it will take their insulin two or three hours to come back down. And right when it's starting to come back down, they have a mid-morning snack and it's another bagel or something. And then, and then they do it for lunch and afternoon snack and dinner and evening snack. And every moment of the day is spent in a state of elevated insulin. And again, just as nighttime is coming and they're asleep and insulin starts to come down, they bump it back up the next day with a starchy and sugary breakfast. So, so that is something that someone can change immediately. Someone maybe can't change inflammation immediately. Maybe they can't change stress immediately, but they can change insulin um, immediately uh, by changing even tomorrow. Anyone who's listening, I would say tomorrow morning for breakfast, don't eat a starchy sugary breakfast. Either fast or, drink, or, or eat protein and fat 
and that will be a better way to help insulin stay low longer. I, I completely agree with you that insulin is the one of the hormones hormones that you can change so quickly. It's just a it's maybe so natural for us to actually work with this hormone. Just come intuitively to me what I'm saying. That's why it's so easy to change it, but probably needs so much uh, willpower or outside oh, yes. of willpower. We've got genetics, we have predispositions, we've got, um, like you said, inflammation, which then drives everything around, right? So, um, but as you said, you can start from tomorrow morning with completely different breakfast and you are setting up yourself for a completely new day because as you said, Ben, insulin is in so many parts and everywhere in our body so you're going to be faster thinking better singing and you know probably faster swimming if that's what you're going yeah. to do yeah. that day fantastic thank you so much ben and uh, what are the genetic predispositions to insulin resistance yes <clears throat> yes so we know that there are genetic factors to, um, towards insulin resistance and this is obvious simply because there's such a familial aspect to it if someone has a parent with type 2 diabetes, it's much more likely that they will struggle with that as well. One, now, so there are many, many genes. I will just simply highlight one um, factor, and, and that is actually um, genes that control how our fat cells grow. And, and we know that people can have variants in the, in the genes that control fat growth. And, 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 and basically, it's... Can, do you have, does the person have fat cells that can grow in a healthy way or do they have fat cells that will grow in a sick way? And, and basically if we took, in fact, we could imagine two people, they are both getting, getting, uh, gaining weight. They're gaining, these two men are gaining 10 pounds every year. Um, they will look like they're both the, the same kind of healthy or sick based on how much fat they have. But we have one man who's getting fat through a process called hypertrophy and another who's getting fat through a process called hyperplasia. So either of these processes will predominate when fat tissue is getting bigger, when we are pinching and jiggling our fat and, and that fat can be growing through two different ways. And hypertrophy is when each individual fat cell is getting bigger, but the number of fat cells isn't changing. So the person has the same number of fat cells, but each cell is getting very big, three or four times bigger, maybe even more than, than normal fat cells. On the other hand, we have fat cells that are growing through hyperplasia. And this is when the fat cell may get a little big, but before it ever gets too big, it simply makes a new fat cell. It makes a new fat cell and makes more fat cells. So this in hyperplasia, the, the potential to get fat is almost limitless. They can continue to get fatter and fatter and fatter. Now, <clears throat> that person, paradoxically, they get fatter, but they also can stay more insulin sensitive. And that's because the fat cells always have more room. They always have, it's like we have two hotels and the hyperplasia always has vacancy. They can always have more guests or more fat come and get stored. And so they stay healthy fat cells. They stay very insulin sensitive fat cells. And then on the other side, when the fat cells have gotten so big, they cannot get any bigger. They have no vacancy. 
And so even though insulin is high and there's lots of calories that the, the insulin is trying to tell the fat cells to store more energy, the, hyper, the hypertrophic fat cell tells insulin, you want insulin, you are trying to tell me to get bigger, but I'm too big. I can get no bigger than I am now. And now the, hyper, the hypertrophic fat cell becomes insulin resistant in order to not get so big that it dies. And, and Daria, you had mentioned homeostasis earlier. This is an instance when homeostasis starts to kind of go wrong a little bit because this hypertrophic fat cell, this very fat fat cell becomes insulin resistant in order to ensure its own survival. But in the process, it starts leaking two things. The hypertrophic fat cell starts leaking fats, free fatty acids, and it starts leaking pro-inflammatory proteins. That only happens when the fat cell has gotten too fat rather than staying small and just making new fat cells. And to your question, there are people who genetically will be more predisposed to one or the other. And we very much see this in, in, across the ethnicities. Uh, for example, I did my, my postdoctoral work in a country called Singapore, a beautiful country in Asia. And Singapore, the government was interested in studying diabetes because they found that Chinese people, for example, will start to get fat when they start to gain weight, <clears throat> they gain weight more through hypertrophy. And we see this also in, in, in Mexicans, for example. Uh, but in, in, you have other ethnicities like, say, European ethnicities, where you have less hypertrophy and a little more hyperplasia. And so I like to joke that if you want to be very fat, then it's good to be Caucasian or European, Northern European because you can get fatter and stay a little healthier than maybe Chinese ethnicity or, or Hispanic ethnicities where the, the fat growth tends to be more through hypertrophy because of genetic polymorphisms or genetic variants in, in the genes that control the, the, the way our fat cells grow. Yes, that would make sense. You know, I am just getting here. Um, I am coming from Poland and definitely I'm Ben. You're here, yes? And definitely I feel like, uh, one second, it's just something coming and going. Yes, and definitely, uh, you know, always they would tell me, you are like Daria Carb Beach, you know what I mean? Yeah, I can yeah. eat carbs. You know, obviously I used to be an athlete, so I've got lots of uh, ability to store those carbs, right, in form of glycogen, right? Uh, obviously over mm -hmm. time now, I had like three years, a little bit of training, but the memory stays there, right? And But I generally can see how my Hispanic husband, right, from Spain, we can eat the same meal and just within a two, three, four days, he will start to see his insulin mm -hmm. resistance going around his waist, for example, where I'm actually, if I load carbs, I actually will get leaner, right? Yeah. And that is, and I cannot just be on fats and protein. I think I top mm -hmm. up fats uh, now into my diet and I didn't do that enough when I was an athlete. And I think that was my problem because I definitely was defi deficient with uh, essential fatty acids and all my energy was from carbs. Uh, now I kind of, I'm a little bit more clever, <laughs> yeah. I would say. But that's what, uh, what exactly would be uh, confirming. Uh, it's uh, the... Um, 
like Indian, Pakistani, uh, or yes, Asian same. population also on hyper no, hypertrophy, right? Uh, mm -hmm, that's right. Yes. Yeah, very much. Yes. Asian Indians. Um, so from India, they very much have a problem with this. They're very sensitive to fat gain. And, and that's why India has more, I think, people with type 2 diabetes than any other country um, in the world. It's because as they have been changing their diet to refined oils and refined starches and sugars, this is, it's, a perfect, it's a perfect storm of, of the worst kinds of foods in, uh, in a body that has a, a limited um, storage for fat uh, because of the hypertrophic the hypertrophy of the fat cells. It just makes it the problem all that much worse. And it doesn't matter. They want or they don't want, they have to change their diet towards eating less processed carbs, right? I think that we can have nice debate here about complex carbs, vegetables, right? Mm -hmm. Pulses that are part of Mediterranean diet, right? Than topping up themselves with uh, samosa or with white rice, which definitely is not going to serve them, right? And that's why we're talking about the habits and, you know, changes yeah. around and, and, and the Daria, culture. Yes. And with, with India specifically, what I think is part of the problem that makes it all worse is they not only are consuming so much more refined starches and sugars, but they, they combine that with seed oils because there's such a, a vegetarian component to India, they will not cook as much with animal fats, which I consider to be very healthy and very stable fats. They will use more of what's called vegetable oil, but that's not true. It's refined seed oils. It's, it's soybean oil and, 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 and cotton seed oil, etc. Omega-6, inflammatory yes. one, right? right and those make, those make fat cells grow through hypertrophy. That's a mechanism I hadn't mentioned yet, but those omega-6 fats make fat cells grow in the, in the sick way rather than the healthy way. And so it, it just makes the whole problem that much worse. And, and I would never, as much as I focus on insulin and, and as much as I focus on carbohydrate, you could, um, I don't want someone to misunderstand, and you touched on this a moment ago, I don't think carbohydrates are inherently bad. No, I don't believe that whatsoever. I do think we have so drastically changed how we eat carbohydrates in so much of the world that now people are getting their carbohydrates from bags or boxes with barcodes. And, and these are refined starches. If someone is eating um, more, more kind of raw, not raw, but, but original, you know, fruits and vegetables or lentils, um, like you mentioned, I, I, have, I think that's wonderful. Um, but also those cultures that are eating that way are likely also cooking with um, fats that are more natural as well, um, whether it's animal or fruit fats. And, and I think both of those are very good. The, the fr animal fats are obvious, but with fruit fats, that's coconuts, um, olives, avocados. Those are fats that we as humans have been eating for millennia, thousands of years, because all our ancestors needed to do was scoop out, get the flesh of the fruit, and then compress it. Just press it, and now you had the oil. But with these modern seed oils, now we've got to go through a very technical industrial process to get fat from something that never wanted to give you its fat in the first place.
Uh, ben, uh, I'm so glad that uh, I've touched it and I'm so glad you it, that you push it, that topic, because um, they all, people always ask me, what do I have to eat? Do I have to eat carbs? Do I if, eat keto? Do I have to eat low and high? You know, protein, is this like as much as it's overwhelming for people, as much as overwhelming for the practitioners, because it's overwhelming for, for people. But one thing uh, that I'm so glad you said, carbs are not an evil, but the way we're eating them and the way we stress, the, the way do we rest, the way we are inflamed, the way we are pushing our homeostasis out of balance is just creating all these uh, tendencies. I'm so glad, Ben, that uh, we're having this uh, beautiful conversation. I know that you're going to do with me part two because our time is running out. There is still so many questions I would love to uh, ask you. And I promise everyone that Ben is going to be yeah. back. Once again, guys, thank you very much. Uh, ben, thank you so much. Have a lovely day. And, um, you know, until next time uh, to picking up where we finished. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. Thank you so much.